Like I say, Anthony, it's more about, you know, we've I've been through all of that. I've been through the doom and gloom. I think we've all been through doom and gloom through COVID. Yeah. We don't need um we don't need to be sucked back into that. What we need to do is try and move around where we can. We might be moving sideways, we're not necessarily moving up, but we might be moving in all these different directions. But we have to try. We can't not. A very determined message from Sharon Lashley, Managing Director of Climate Action North. Hello, I'm Anthony Day with the Sustainable Futures Report for Thursday the 10th of August. This is how our conversation developed. Sharon, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report. Hello, good morning, Anthony. Thank you for inviting me to talk today. It's a pleasure. Now, before you actually joined Climate Action North, what sort of things were you doing? Right, well, um, first of all, I... I still am an environmentalist in my own right with my own organisation that I run and have run since 2013 as a self-employed um, environmental consultant. But prior to that, I had moved around various different sectors, started off as a shorthand typist, clickety-clack on a typewriter. I started my career in manufacturing sector in the clothing industry, actually. And then I went from the clothing industry to... Um, manufacturing ironically and strangely in the plastic blow molding sector um but actually i learned a lot about plastics and the composition of plastics and and the way that they could actually be reground and regenerated and recycled so even then when i was working for that organization i was in my early 20s and i was involved in setting up ISO 14001 management systems, but then also putting in place waste management systems. So we also had a recycling system for the um, intermediate bulk containers that we made. So it was very much we make it, we take it back, which in those days was probably quite cutting edge in terms of circular economy because we were already doing it. Um, and I never really related back to CE until I actually thought about what I did when I was in my 20s working for this plastic packaging company, which was quite clever, really, in the way that it, it laid the foundations for my um, environmentalism. And I actually did my training on the job and got myself an NBQ level four in environmental management while I was working at the factory. So it was very hands on training. It was very um very involved in all of the processing, including, you know, the economic benefits of what we were doing. So it was a bit of a an all round education on the job as well. So that actually laid the foundations for the job that I, well, the career that I have now. I've had quite a few jobs, but they've always had an environmental focus, um, which has really helped me to get to where I am now. Which is MD of Climate Action North. Tell us a bit about what Climate Action North does. Yeah, well, Climate Action North was um, was kind of like a, a spin-off from my own organisation. You know, I'd been running my own organisation um, since 2013, but really felt that, you know, working as a consultant for other people, I was very much driven by their goals and their um, requirements about what they needed to do. I wasn't really giving something back to the community on my terms, so I thought, that, you know, perhaps I could set up a not-for-profit community interest company. Um, so I did. So I thought about it in 2017 and thought, how can I give something back to the community that would really benefit, the, you know, those people rather than me just working for other people 
similar to what I was doing before, but on my own terms. But yeah, it was just a good way of giving something back to the community. So I set up the um, the cake, we call it, the Community Interest Company in 2017 with um, another director, Jennifer Claire Robson, who, like me, had been in the industry a long time and we could see what was happening. We just needed to do something. And then, yeah, the, the rest is history, really. We've just come on leaps and bounds in the last six years to get to uh, virtually where we are now. But we're basically focused on taking action through direct projects, not action, projects, really, um, that take action that way, not activists, but we do take action through projects um, and we get sort of things happening, mobilising stuff. Right. Okay. So the, you're still working with businesses, but I believe you're working more with 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 schools now as well. Yeah, we're working with schools, businesses, um, communities, and basically our primary aim is to get local businesses linked with schools and communities so that they can make a difference on the ground um, through their own corporate social responsibility. Right. Now you posted on LinkedIn recently and what caught my eye was a comment when you said here at Climate Action North we no longer preach or try to force climate change and climate action onto anyone those days are gone as we are no longer in the change period we as a team are in full adaptation and resilience mode and there are many ways to help the news is indeed dire but you can go on and I have gone on on, on, the, on the podcast uh, sharing bad news but I think what you're saying there is that's we we know that now what do we do about it yeah I mean we've known that for the last 30 years Anthony to be honest we've known oh yes we've known <laughs> we've known that you know the uh the systems were breaking down put it that way we were you know Jen and I were working on climate change adaptation 20 nearly 2015 20 the, years the, ago the difference is People, very many more people now are aware of it, even in in the most recent past, because of all these uh, disasters in in Greece and, and wildfires and all this sort of thing. And in fact, a very high proportion of people are saying, "Yes, we've got to aim for net zero. Yes, there is a problem." The other problem, of course, is that having recognised it, they're not too happy about the action that needs to be taken in order to deal with it. For example, well, the the ULES, the ultra low emissions zone controversy in London, where the council wants to introduce that to cut um, air pollution, but also cut carbon emissions. And yet people are up in arms. So we've got this sort of dichotomy. We've got this this dilemma. Where do we go from there? Yeah, it is a dilemma. And and like I say, it's a problem that we've faced for many, many, many years now. And it's always been a problem. People have always resisted change, in all honesty. And this is they always have. I mean, we're humans at the end of the day, but we have to see um, a difference. We have to see something different as a positive rather than a negative. And we have to obviously do our homework and we have to review things. But there's a saying that, you know, we can study something to death, you know, because yeah. it's, and I, and I take that from, you know, a recent podcast that I listened to anyway, but you can, you can, you can, you can study something for many, many years and then 10 years have passed, which is what's happened, which was what drove me to do something because we had been talking about this subject for 10 years. And it is difficult for people to see um, past that dire, you know, that dire situation and wonder what we can do. I think we've just gone in with the um, 
they aim to help people overcome the overwhelmness of it all because they're, they're overwhelmed by the enormity of what they might have to do but they don't have to do an enormous amount to make a small difference and that's what we bring it back to how can we have fun how can we enjoy something that we're doing and by default we're actually helping the planet you know in a small way and i think that's what we've come to the conclusion that we just can't force people anymore we've got to yeah. engage with them the problem is if you go back to the the ULES issue, um, that's not fun. And the problem with that is there's a cost involved and it hits most the poorest section of society. And that obviously is unjustifiable. So again, how do we get out of that sort of issue? Well, these are the problems we can't solve, you see. This is why we've had to, and honestly, we've had to detach ourselves from the things that we cannot control. And I'll be honest with you, that's how we work. If we cannot control a larger global situation, we have to get on with the things that we can control. We're in a mess at the end of the day, Anthony. There's a lot of things are in a mess. Um, you, We can't sort everyone else's mess out, unfortunately. We can only do what you know we can do something about what we can control um and i've been in the industry a long time i've been working with businesses who won't change sometimes you have to walk away from those and concentrate on the ones that will and sometimes it's a it's a very difficult thing it's a difficult situation we're all in at the moment yeah. reminds me of a quotation i'm probably misquoting it but it's something like um oh god give me strength to cope with things i cannot change uh give me courage to change those things I can change and the wisdom to know the difference between them. Absolutely. And well said. And that is exactly. And it's that kind of um, analogy that can be used in life in general, to be honest. But we have to be able to move through the problems that we can solve. And this is what we do. It's not, it's not something that's overly complicated, but we have to try and simplify the things that we can work with. Otherwise, we do get overwhelmed by everything. We don't get any work done and it impacts on myself and my team and we just need to move through what we can. Right. Government have a great responsibility and government in the UK at the moment is working in completely the wrong direction. And in fact, uh, the sort of things that are coming out of the opposition are not very encouraging either. Now, I, I know that you're not a campaigning organisation. You're you're a practical organisation. You're on the ground. You're working. You're achieving things. But um, there are other organisations like Just Stop Oil. Now, where do you stand on Just Stop Oil? Are they doing the right thing? It's a difficult one. I can fully understand the frustration and the pressure and the enormity of their their views. I can fully appreciate that. But in my humble opinion, you know, this is just what I do. It's not the approach I would take. However, I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I I really just, I just sit on the fence where, the, where, where Just Stop Oil and bigger campaign organisations are concerned because there's a lot more involved in in the action that they take. There's a lot more sitting behind that. But, you know, going back to government, though, government have a duty of care to protect us. And that's what I don't understand. I, I really don't agree with the approaches that are being made because their duty of care, they're failing on that to look after society. And if and we only have the power to change certain things or act on certain things. We don't have the power to act on the bigger things. And that's where I think they are really are failing us 
the society. Last week, members of Greenpeace climbed on the roof of the Prime Minister's country home and unfurled a banner complaining about the latest decisions on oil drilling and so on. As a result, the government said they're not going to talk to Greenpeace anymore. Is that a sensible reaction? It's not a sensible reaction. It's 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 um I don't think it's again, it's about the context of things, really, Anthony. You you know, all of these things are taken in a certain context and in you know, alienation and alienating things and people and, and followers is a difficult thing to manage as well. And I think we have to be very careful to get the balance right. You know, we have a society that needs to go through this just transition to get to where we need to be. And we have to make, you know, speaking of changes, we do have to make some changes that are going to have to happen quicker than others. Some people have the power to make the changes quicker than us. Um, that's, those are the people that we really need on our side. Um, some people have the power to shout the loudest and that's what they do. But I think it's all about context. You know, people have to sit back and say, well, why are they so passionate about what they do? Why are people so angry about this? Instead of saying, you know, you might have someone in one ear, someone in the other. I don't know the situation, but you, you've got to listen to both sides of the story. Um, you know, and where the oil and gas sector is concerned, you know, I'm not a hypocrite. I use oil and gas. I have to because I don't have any choice. I have a mum in a nursing home that absolutely needs oil and gas at the moment. So I can't sit and say demonise all fossil fuels because I don't. What I actually do is support the just transition process. We have to give people the opportunity to change. We have to make those people who are not changing quick enough see that they've got to change quicker. So all of this thing about, in my just in my opinion, about the just transition, the oil and gas situation, is we have to work quicker for a different solution, a better solution for the future. Let's talk about some of the practical things you do at Climate Action North. Uh, I believe you're involved in rewilding, and there's a lot of debate on that. What's your view, and, and how far are you involved in rewilding? Okay, well, rewilding, I think, is our hope for the future. I have actually... In the 10, 15 years that I've been working heavily, more heavily in climate action, I have never been more positive about anything than I have about rewilding at scale. Because if you split it down to rewilding large areas at scale and do large scale rewilding um, improvements on land that's marginalised, that may not be used for food production, and this is where we need to come back a little bit you know we work really closely with rewild in britain we are the northeast coordinators for rewild in britain here in the northeast and we we abide by their principles on their website and rewild in britain are not trying to rewild the whole of the uk they're just looking at something like five percent so it's not a great massive area that we're asking people to think about so large-scale rewilding shouldn't be confused like you know lynx bears and wolves because we're not going to have that um we might have something but we won't have all of it and then you've got to come right back down to community rewilding which is where we sit within the spectrum so we're mobilizing communities to be um to be more mindful of their rewilded spaces and businesses as well you know we've got a lot of business parks if they could rewild 30 percent of their business parks imagine how much connectivity that would give for wildlife and insects and, and pollinators you know the connectivity would be much improved so it's a topic though that is debatable yeah you know, 
very much so across all of that area. Well, one of the main issues, uh, I mean, I take your point that you're talking about uh, rewilding principally marginal agricultural land. But one of the major points of debate is whether within that model you still have livestock. Now, George Monbiot is very much against livestock. Other people say, no, you need livestock. They're part of the whole eco ecosystem and they fertilise the land and uh, uh, and they are essential. Uh, where, where are you coming from on that? I think there's a difference between livestock as in livestock for food, for a mm-hmm. food, like a big food industry. And there's a difference between grazing animals that, you know, we typically might do the job of in our own little garden. You know, we might snuffle like a pig when we're using a trowel and stuff. And it's about, you know, the land needs to be moved in some way. Because if you just left a piece of land to just rewild on its own, you'd just have a forest or a woodland. You wouldn't have any sort of management at all. Mm. So, there's, I mean, you know, if there's a lot of um, really excellent webinars and podcasts out there to give people um, a view, a better view on why we need some grazing animals. And then obviously the grazing animals that some people are using are are sort of modelled on the original species that we might have had many, many years ago. Um like wild ponies and oryx and stuff like that. So all of these different animals are not just grazing livestock for, but for food production, it's a difference between, you know, just um, raising animals and using animals for food production and feeding that livestock. And then there's a difference between grazing livestock that you can utilise on, say, a farm like NEP, for example, where they've utilised the grazing animals for um, for rewilding, but they also have their own um economy building from that as well nep nep what's nep 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 it's k-n-e-double-p so if you if you google the nep rewilding project um uh-huh. it's basically a farm in in sussex west sussex that was um over the last sort of 10-15 years has been um transitioning from a typical normal standard farm you know growing crops etc mm-hmm. but it's been tra- transitioning into a rewilded space um so they've got various compartments that are looking at um you know completely rewilded space with minimal management with some grazing livestock they've got a meat production um you know um sustainable meat production business they've got a glamping business on that so nep is is held up as the sort of um government case study i suppose for really? a wilded specialist area so yeah you can read all about nep in um isabella tree's book wilding the first book and then you can read her next book which is called the book of wilding it, it's all about you know rewilding all along the spectrum from high level sort of um species reintroduction down to what you can do to rewild your window box for example right well i'll put links to those on the podcast website so people can follow that up and obviously i'll also put a link to george monrio's book uh, regenesis well as we come towards the end of our conversation let's look again in practical terms what's your message to people listening what should they do what sort of things can they consider that they should be doing in their daily lives to make a difference well first of all i would say you know look at the things that you can actually control first because if you try and tackle the things that are out of reach or out of your control you'll just get despondent and you won't do anything and that's what we you know we get faced with a lot of oh i can't do that i'll never be able to make a difference so i won't bother and that's the difference so it's about making sure that you are managing um 
you know, your own expectations and what can you do? So anything from, and I'm probably going to, you know, go over all the things that we would say to people making one small change in your lifestyle. It might be looking at, you know, using less single-use plastics, for example. You know, do things like beach cleans. They make you feel good. You know, they're, they're a good thing to do. You get out on the beach, you've done something, you've stopped all of that plastic going back out to sea, and it's actually fun, and you are making a difference. And then coming back to rewilding, you know, if you've got a garden space, think about leaving some of it wild and just watch what comes back because, you know, I've got a yard and actually I've got a guard yard and, um, and mine is tiny and it's packed full of plants in pots and I've got a, a mini ecosystem in itself just in my tiny space. So it doesn't matter how small that space is. If you make, if you make space for nature, for example, and think about, you know, how wild can you let your garden go? Um, then you will see things landing. And I think that's important, you know, help the species that need the help that, you know, they've they've not asked for this. They've not asked to be driven out or be made extinct. We've just done that by, you know, by default. So please just try and help, you know, in any way that you can. Um, you know, follow us for the stuff, the work that we do, follow what we're doing. Um, you might get your own ideas. We've got a whole new climate resilient communities program starting as well. It's about making people more resilient in the changing climate just by knowing what they can do. There's a lot we can do. You know, we might be we might think that we're insignificant as one person, but together, you know, we make a lot. Eight billion people on the planet all did something would be pretty well off, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's a very positive message. Now, you're based in the northeast of England. Are there similar projects elsewhere in the UK and indeed elsewhere in the world? Absolutely. There's so much going on, Anthony, in terms of, I mean, even if you were just Googling rewilding and you look at all of the rewilding projects in Europe, you can easily become so energised by all of this really good news. So I would say look past the doom and gloom if you can. Don't trawl through all of the, you know, the bad news. Try and detach yourself from that and come to, you know, sometimes my side of the world where all I do is listen to rewilding podcasts and I've listened to some of them 10 times over and I can probably recite them. But it's just because they make me feel good. They make me feel positive about what's happening in the world. So if we don't just isolate ourselves to the UK and everything that's going on here, try and look wider and think, my goodness, what would that be like if that came to our you know, to our country or our world. Um, so all of these things will add up. So there's a lot of positive projects going on if you can, um, if you start looking for them. Even across the UK, there's some, some incredible, there's a company called Heal Rewilding, for example, that are buying up land to rewild. The wildlife trusts are buying land to rewild. It's all good, positive stuff. Um, you know, everyone is doing what they can everyone is trying to buy land to keep it wild and make it more sustainable for future generations so you know buying land is a really really important um a positive thing to look at as well so yeah you can you can get there just by looking wider than the immediate doom and gloom that we're in at the moment well that's great it's good to have a positive message because there's plenty of mess of negative messages out there um, not just messages, but news and all that sort of thing. So thank you for raising the tone, making us more hopeful. Uh, Sharon, it's been a pleasure to talk to you at the Sustainable Futures Report. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm going to have a coffee in my little tiny yard. <laughs> Great. 
Sharon Lashley is the Managing Director of Climate Action North. Their main projects are pollinator parks, rewilding the North's business parks, global wilders, education projects with children, schools and communities linked to the Sustainable Development Goals. There is also a Business Action Toolkit, developed to help businesses assess their resilience in the changing climate. It's all on the blogs page, and there's a link on the Sustainable Futures Report website. There are also links to the books and the other things we mentioned. That should give you something to read over the rest of August. I've got to the point where I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back early in September. I do hope you're enjoying the summer, although it's not been at all enjoyable recently. Still time for an Indian summer, we can always hope. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'll be back in September.